Hello. Today uh, we are going to continue our study in the Apostles' Creed. Um, the phrases in which we are going to be studying and putting our attention on are, I think, some of the most underrated, um, probably in our side of the Reformation. Um, our Catholic brothers and sisters probably give um, these ideas a a better sense of honor and probably have a better theology than most people um, who would be within our churches. And that's to say, um, I think this idea of the ascension of Jesus Christ has somewhat lost um, its necessity. And we can see that because when we talk about um, the essentials of the faith and when we talk about the life of Jesus, more specifically, we always talk about how um, how Jesus lived and how he died and how he was raised from the dead, right? So we always say um, we need to understand the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And what um, the creeds show us, you can see this in the Apostles' Creed, also in the Nicene Creed, and then the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed, um, is this is that the our forefathers in the faith sought or saw this as a necessity that this was actually a necessary belief because of not only what it that it actually happened, but also the implications of what it actually signifies. So here you have this double meaning of it also happened in reality, but the fact that it happened in reality is not the driving factor behind why it, it is why it is in the creed. It is in the creed because these ideas that Christ ascended to heaven, and not only that he ascended, but that he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and that he will come to judge. Those ideas are huge signifiers. They have deep Old Testament um, ideas behind them. And so if we just ignore the fact that Christ was ascended, if we run over Acts 1, um, and we don't talk about the ascension of Jesus, and we actually miss one of the key messianic prophecies um, that the New Testament shows us and that the early Christians held on to. Uh, Jesus himself holds these, uh, this text particular, speaking of Daniel 7, where we have this um, being, the Son of Man, ascending um, and going up to be accepted by the Father. That idea comes to fruition in Acts 1. And so if we don't have an ascension, if the ascension never happens, then we must, because it's been included in the creeds, we must lose something from the Christian faith. And what we are going to look at today is that um, the ascension and his specific place, his enthronement is what it can be called, the ascension and the enthronement are necessary for the faith. Um, to get this idea across, I want to take a running start at Daniel 7. And so, um, if you didn't know that you can actually look, Daniel is one of the best books uh, of all of Scripture in which you can look and find this thread, this idea of the kingdom. Um, and so, we, we can kind of see that as an overall framework for Daniel because of when Daniel is written. Um, we know that during this time, as Daniel is being put together, that Israel is in the time of exile, right? So we have uh, Israel being the people of God, could not live up to the law of God, and therefore were subject to the judgment by the other nations. Um, in a sense, God 
hands, he does, he hands Israel over to living like the other nations because so often they wanted to be like the other nations. And therefore, the idea of a kingdom or the idea of a people specifically dedicated to God is completely overthrown in the exile. And so you have this remnant theme that runs through a lot of the uh, exilic literature, this remnant theme that there are some who still hold to the idea that God desires a people for himself. And so we know that God has promised that he will make out of Abraham this nation, yet this nation has fallen. And therefore, there is this constant question in the Jewish mind that is, when will God bring about the promises that he had given to our forebearers? When will God raise up the king he promised in 2 Samuel? When will God fulfill his words to Abraham? that he will uh, have a nation. And when will God fulfill the promises that he gave us through the law, right? These are the kinds of questions that they have. And so around this time, usually in exilic periods, people are always looking and trying to cling to a hope. And it is in this context in which Daniel helps us understand what is happening. And in this context, God actually answers some of these questions. Um, And so we need to understand that this is a a thread that runs through Daniel. This isn't just picking out an idea, but it is a a stream or a river that we can actually follow. And the point of following this stream is, is that this specifically connects to Christ's ascension, which is necessary for our faith. So if we go and we look, um, if you are uh, have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 2, uh, verse 20. And if you uh, have ever done any study in Daniel, you'll, you'll notice that there are these moments in which the characters in Daniel have these shining moments where they actually um, nail it right on the head. They just get it. And this, it is a great book of uh, ascribing to Yahweh the glory that is due to him even though Israel is in exile. You have pagan kings who give glory to God. You have... Um, Uh, Some of the prophets, you have Daniel himself giving glory to God. So there are these glimpses, these windows of of true reality, of a real reference to the glory that is in God. And so you pick one of these up in uh, Daniel chapter 2, which is in the context of uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has a dream. And so he asks that the wise men in his court will tell him not only the interpretation of the dream, but also he wants to know the dream itself. So he's asking for a miracle because there's no one on earth who could tell him what his dream was except for a real act of God, right? So this here is when Daniel goes and tells, tells the, the, uh, the messenger, he says, hey, go tell Nebuchadnezzar not to kill the priests and the wise men, but I will tell him what his dream is and its implication. And so Daniel has a, an enormous amount of faith. And so he goes and he asks God to reveal to him Nebuchadnezzar's dream and its interpretation. So God does this, and this is Daniel's response. Daniel says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belongs wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. This is, this is the important part. He says, He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God, my fathers, my, uh, my fa- God, O God of my fathers, 
I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked, for you have made known to us the king's matter. And so in this, in this piece of Daniel praising God for what he has done, you actually have this glimpse into the sovereignty of God being made known. Daniel says in verse 21, he says he changes times and seasons, he removes kings and sets up, sets up kings. This isn't a new idea to the Jews. The Jews understood this with the exile, or excuse me, with the exodus. In the Exodus, you have Yahweh showing himself to be the kind of God who will pull a nation out for himself. Therefore, through the plagues, God shows his supremacy, his authority over the superpower of the world, Egypt. Each of the plagues correspond to the gods of Egypt, and Pharaoh himself claims himself to be a god. Therefore, if Yahweh shows his authority over the things in which Egypt says they have authority over, the true one who has the authority must be God, of a God of Israel, this Yahweh, who's made himself known. And so we know this from Israel's history, that God is the one who controls kings and kingdoms. And so you kind of see that throughout the histories, but here Daniel ascribes this to God. Once again, God is the one who sets up the kings and the kingdoms, right? And so now, if you take a look in Daniel chapter 2, verse 31, 35, um, and we'll kind of read, run through a, little, a lot of this, um, and we'll, I'll be pointing some stuff out, but if we pick up in verse 30, 31, it says, uh, Daniel's interpreting this dream. He says, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet of partly iron and of partly clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold, all together, were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So here you have this vision. Um, this is the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. And Daniel it receives this vision. And now we know from a little bit further on, Daniel actually explains this. Um, but it's important to notice that in this text you have these four uh, sections of this statue describing in decreased glory that they are broken to pieces by one stone, and it is a stone that is not cut by human hands. So Daniel explains what this means. He says, um, continuing on in verse 36, it says, This was the dream. Now we will tell you the king's interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory... Notice that. Daniel understands that God is the one who sets up kings and kingdoms. Therefore, because Nebuchadnezzar is king, Daniel says that God has put him in power, which is an important thing for us to understand. So in verse 38, he continues, he says, And into whose hand he has given, wherever they may dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. No, see what he says? He places Nebuchadnezzar accurately in the story. He says, you are the head of gold. Therefore, he has glory, right? He is the gold. Yet, his kingdom will be shattered by the stone. Is this making sense? So, 
you continue on in verse 44 and 45, Daniel continues up and he says, and in the days of those kings, he talks about how um, the others are other kings and kingdoms. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all of these kingdoms and bring to them and bring them to an end. And all and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hands, and that it broke into pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. See, here's what God is revealing. We understand now through these through this text. We understand that Yahweh reveals the future kingdom that he's going to establish. And so we now see that God is still promising, even in exile, that God is still promising this future kingdom. If we move on a little bit further, you can see in the moment in which Nebuchadnezzar rejoices, he gives God glory. He says in chapter 4, verse 3, he says, How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom, speaking of Yahweh, is an everlasting kingdom, which means it never ends. And his dominion endures from generation to generation, which is a way of saying that your your might, your power, your authority will never end. So the kingdom is God's, and the power to establish the kingdom is God's. And if we move on into uh, chapter 4, if we go to verse uh, 34 through 36, we have another instance of this kind of exclamation. He says, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, says, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, meaning Yahweh, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Notice the same linguistic connection. This is the same God. This is the same one who will establish his kingdoms. He does what he wills, and he will always do it. Verse 35, he says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? Do you get this idea? God is the one. Yahweh is the one who establishes these kingdoms. So now if you... One more, we'll take a look um, in verse... Or chapter 6, verse 25 through 27. Here's this... this Another instance, we're, we're, this is a new king. Now we're dealing with Darius. Um, then King Darius wrote to all the peoples and nations and languages that dwell in all the earth. So the kingdoms have shifted. Uh, Babylon was in power. And then as Babylon kind of loses some of its ground, Persia kind of takes over. And so it becomes this Medo-Persian empire. Um, so Persia rises. King Darius, who's the, who is the king over Persia, now he would be the king over the known world. So it was Nebuchadnezzar, and now it is Darius. And so Darius wrote to all the peoples and the nations and languages that dwell on the earth, peace be multiplied to you and I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. This is after uh, Daniel is saved from the lion's den. And Darius says this. He says, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. See what he's saying? Once again, you have another king talking about this heavenly kingdom. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So you're seeing what is happening. You have this thread. And this is important because 
we haven't gotten to the ascension yet, but in chapter 7, one of the most important chapters of the Bible, in chapter 7 you have the kingdom handed over to the Son of Man, which is a huge deal. So, in Daniel chapter 7, you have this vision. And once again, it is the same vision that Nebuchadnezzar had. It is a vision of the four beasts instead of the single statue with the four pieces. You have here the same reality described in a different way. And so, you pick this up and Daniel sees these four beasts and he's just blown away. And then he transfers his sight. It goes, and as I looked... Thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair on his head was pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. Thousands, a thousand thousands served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment. The books were opened. So you see this image of this glorious glorious king it's the ancient of days which is the father and so uh in verse 11 he says and i looked and because of the sound and the great words that the horn was speaking which is uh one of the kings of one of the kingdoms is especially blasphemous and so the beast he says as i looked the beast was killed and its body was destroyed and given over to be burned with fire as for the rest of the beast their dominion was taken away but their lives prolonged for a season and time so once again yahweh is the king yahweh takes the dominion from the kings in whom he had entrusted it so they do not live up to the kingdom standard in which God has designed. So these four kingdoms are not the kingdom that God will establish. These four kingdoms lose their glory. And this is when you have this magnificent text. This is the most clear messianic prophecy text that you can find in your Old Testament. It says, And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, which... If we pay attention to the theme of clouds throughout our Old Testaments, you'll be able to follow um, that the clouds symbolize the presence of God. The clouds envelop uh, the tabernacle. The cloud led the people out of Egypt. The cloud uh, enveloped Sinai. The cloud entered the, uh, the temple when it was dedicated. So this is this, the presence of God. It says, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, so presence, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So this is an ascension. He goes up with the clouds to the Ancient of Days. It was presented before him. And to him, this is the, tran this is the transfer, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So do you see what's happening? This is... An ascended being to the Heavenly Father, an ascended being because of their name, which is the person and work, because of who they are, Yahweh hands the, king, the kingdom over to this being, which is crazy to think about because this is the Father's kingdom. Remember earlier, it all belongs to Yahweh. And yet here we have a glimpse into a triune God interacting with himself in which he has presented to another being, we understand this as Christ, another being, the kingdom in which is the Father's. Which is how we can see that if this being is ascending to the Father, then that means, according to Daniel 7, that that one is the one whom is the king of the kingdom. So if Christ is king then we understand that it was the Father's 
And as Christ ascends to the Father, the Father bestows on him, gives over to the Son, the kingdom, which is absolutely crazy to think about. And so when that happens, we need to take a look and see a little bit further. There are three other areas in this text where uh, the same linguistic connection is made, but it's not with the king. Notice what happens. Uh, if you continue on in verse 18, it says, But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Okay, that's in contrast with the four beasts. It talks about that in 17. So in 17, you have the, the four beasts. And then in 18, you have the people of the kingdom, who are the saints. And notice how they're described. They're going to possess the kingdom. Right? God hands the kingdom over to the Son, and the Son hands the kingdom over to the saints. They possess the kingdom. It doesn't just say it once. It says it three times. So again, in verse 21, he says, As I looked, this horn... This is the previous horn. This horn that made war with the saints and prevailed over them. So for a time, the saints look like they're losing, but in reality, they're not. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Once again, who gets the kingdom? The saints do, which was, which was attributed to the Son of Man. Again, it says, for the third time in verse 27, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom. All his dominion shall serve and obey him. You see what it does there? It talks about how the saints take over the kingdom, and then it gives the referent back to the son. His kingdom. All shall obey him. So, here's what you need. This is a prophecy, therefore, this must happen in reality which we see happen in Acts 1. So the ascension to heaven is not just the way in which Jesus gets out of earth. It's not like he, he didn't, didn't, it's not like he went uh, um, in the easiest way possible. He went in a way to signify the reality that Daniel 7, that the kingdom that in which the Father has promised is present. It is accomplished. It is victorious. It is officially here. It, it, it signifies the establishment and the fulfillment of God's eternal and victorious kingdom among men. That's what it does for us. So the next part of the creed says, and it sits at the right hand of the Father Almighty. So he ascended into heaven, and he sits at the right hand of the Father Almighty. This is important because it's in the creed. It's important because our fathers in the faith established that it was necessary that we understand Jesus's geography in heaven. It's not that, that he's just in heaven somewhere, but where he is is essential for us to understand. Uh, if we think about this, what does the enthronement actually signify? If you think about it and you don't have a text to it, then you need to be thinking about Psalm 110. So turn to Psalm 110 and take a look. It says it specifically. Uh, Jesus uses Psalm 110 in the Gospels. Psalm 110 is the most quoted uh, and the most referenced section of the Old Testament among the New Testament texts. So Psalm 110 is a huge idea. Uh, this is a Psalm of David. Here's what it says. It says, uh, verse 1, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make, an, make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. 
He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses, and he will shatter chiefs over the wide earth, and he will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. Do you see what he's saying? That in order for this to happen, if Christ is going to be enthroned, then we also need the prophecy of, of Psalm 110 to be fulfilled in Christ. He must be seated at the right hand of the Father. And this is a further implication that Christ is indeed the king in which the king, the king who the Father hands the kingdom over, over to. And notice how he says, he says he's a priest. So you have the line of the kings and the line of the priests aligning in this one person, in Christ. And so you have this picture of Christ being seated at the right hand of the Father, and that the Father promises that in time, everything will be put under the Lordship of Christ. Everything will go under Him. And if you think about this, as we talked about earlier, when you think about this kingdom, and you think about the King, and you think about the enthronement and the ascension, the important texts we hold on to are first or excuse me, 2 Samuel 7, which is uh, David uh, promising to build God a house, meaning the temple, and God turns it around on him and says, no, I will build for you a house. And he's talking about a king who will live forever, or a, a king who will rule forever. And so you have this idea that Solomon comes along, and actually the kingdoms get worse. With Solomon's sons, the kingdom falls apart. So the kingdom does not go in the trajectory in which God promised in 2 Samuel 7, so it does not become fully fulfilled until we have this future king and this future kingdom. And then we need to understand what we talked about in Daniel 7, that this king needs to ascend to the right hand of the Father. The, de the referent, the Lord in Psalm 110, is the Son of Man in Daniel 7, because they are both what we see happen in Jesus. Therefore, the Lord of Psalm 110 is Yahweh speaking to Christ, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Sit at my right hand until I fully give to you everything that we've promised. Get the idea? So he has to be at the right hand of the Father, A, because it is prophesied in 110, and also because the right hand is a position of power, and he's seated showing a symbol, or as signifying that the work in which he has done is accomplished. If a king is acting, he's standing. If a king is seated, he has completed things. That's kind of the old, the old idea of it. So here's where this is interesting. Um, if we take those ideas, um, you can see specifically Jesus pulling this out in Luke 22. Um, Jesus specifically says in a couple of places, he talks about being seated at the right hand um, and the Son of Man being seated. Uh, you see this in uh, Luke 22 verse 67 and 68. So Jesus is before the council, and he says, uh, the, the, the council says to him, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Now, we might not think that that's a big deal, but they understand what he's saying. They get what he's signifying. If you are the, the one prophesied from Psalm 110, then you are claiming to be the Son of Man from Daniel 7, then you're saying you're the Messiah. 
And they have a big problem with that because Jesus' ministry doesn't look like they wanted it to look. They want a Daniel 7 only kind of king. They want a victorious militant leader, which is what they have in the Maccabees which happens just a few generations earlier. But what happens here is there's a mixing of uh, Isaiah 53, which is the prophecy of the suffering servant, that there would come someone who will take on the injustice of the world to himself for the forgiveness. And so if that happens, they don't expect the Isaiah 53 and Daniel 7 to be the same person. But you actually see this in Mark 10 um, when the apostles talk to Jesus and they're saying, um, uh, uh, or they're, they're kind of bickering about their, their positions and they're wanting seats of authority. And Jesus says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Right? So he's pulling Son of Man, Daniel 7 idea, one who is militant leader, victorious king. And Jesus mixes that with Isaiah 53. No, he actually needs to give his life. And therefore, we are actually called to do the very same. So in this gospel narrative of this ascension and the enthronement, you actually have also a very uh, important ethic, an important um, motive for our, uh, our, the method in which we live our lives. You have an, imp- an important um, piece here that comes in. If you look at uh, Philippians 2, Paul talks about this. He, he links it linguistically with this ascension. Um, those of you who know Philippians 2, um, here you see Jesus ascending as the main principle for the ethics of the Philippians. So in this section of Philippians 2, he talks about how we are unified in the same mind, this mind of love that has been given to us by Christ. Therefore, here's what he does. He offers up the gospel reality as a symbol of how we ought to live with one another. Basically, what he says is, if you want to be a part of the kingdom, you must live like the king. And the king lived an Isaiah 53 kind of life. So here he says in, in uh, Philippians 2 verse 5, he says, Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Did you hear it? God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name, which is the person and work, has bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so the name of Jesus. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess. What? That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You've got a lot going on there, but here you see Paul pulling this idea out. This is how the king operated. Therefore, we must operate in a similar way. And so with the enthronement specifically, the enthronement signifies the complete righteous work of the Christ and the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel in the establishment of the kingdom, right? They have a king. And not only with that, but um, now that this ascension piece has been completed, as Christ goes up and as he establishes his place in heaven, you also get what Paul talks about in Ephesians 4. In Ephesians 4, Paul is talking to the church and he's Um, He's talking about this life now in Christ, and he he mentions specifically the unity that is necessary in the church. So he says in chapter 4, verse 7, he says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, 
When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but also that he descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And he continues on talking about how they build up the body. So, not only is the ascension necessary, but the ascension and the enthronement are easily seen through the presence of the Spirit. Christ says in John's Gospel that it is better that he should go away, speaking of going to the Father, so that the Helper may come, who is the Holy Spirit. You have this same thing. This is what happens in Acts, right? Jesus goes up to the Father, Acts 1. They receive the Holy Spirit, Acts 2. And therefore, we have the Spirit of Christ. You have the heart of Christ. You have the soul of God living among the people of God for the first time in a way in which it has never been done before. God's Spirit indwelled a few choice people through the Old Testament, but God is now doing something totally unique and new. In the New Covenant, all are indwelled with the Holy Spirit. All participate with the divine nature. All are brought through this sanctification process by the power of the Spirit. And so, the evidence of Christ's enthronement is the presence of the Spirit among the saints. So if you ever doubt, man, I wonder if he actually went where he said he went, or I don't know if he ever actually ascended. The presence of the Holy Spirit is the yes to your questioning. Yes, he ascended. How do you know? Because I have the Holy Spirit and I see him working among the saints. That is our evidence that these things are true. So we see God continuing to prove himself and to give us signs that this kingdom is fully established, or excuse me, is partially established and will be fully established. This is the idea that sit at my right hand until I make the enemies your footstool. God still is given over to the kingdoms of this earth, some dominion, but all authority belongs to Christ. And in one day, which is this next section, and one day Christ will come and all will be held to account. It is Christ's authority. It is Christ's kingdom. His kingdom is victorious. We understand that because of the cross. The defeat of the enemy was at the cross. Therefore, Christ will come and collect. And this is where we have the next line. It says, from there, speaking of the right hand in heaven, there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. And a lot of people like to spend a ton of time talking about the judgment. And I understand our need to talk about the judgment in great detail because it's something that's very curious. It's very... Um, there's just a lot of questions about it in our in today's age, uh, especially in our culture. Um, people who understand or um, believe the rapture, which is an 18th century idea, um, that some will be taken, some will be left, which comes from one verse in Matthew's Gospel, which really doesn't quite talk about that kind of thing happening. But we have more people who understand the theology of judgment from fiction, like um, what was the 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 left behind things which are non-biblical than people who understand like than actual biblical understanding of the judgment so the judgment uh sections of the gospels or excuse me of the new testament are very very clear uh on a few things and very empty or uh, they leave out quite a bit of uh some things that we would like to know and i think that's on purpose um if we take a look we can see uh let's look at matthew chapter 24 
Oh, excuse me. That is not that is not what I wanted to talk about. Oh, sorry. Uh, what I wanted to do is twenty six eight. Uh, sorry, twenty eight eighteen. I don't know why I said that. Um, Okay, here, here is what we need to understand. This is why Christ gets to do things, okay? This is the great omission of the great commission. Okay, so in Matthew 28, you have the great commission at the very end, but we often miss this. In verse 18, it says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. Right? That is the grounds for our mission, is the authority of Christ. All authority has been given in heaven and on earth has been given to Christ. Therefore, we expect him to be the judge. And we see this, um, Paul understands and speaks to the Thessalonians about this because the Thessalonians have a little bit of bad theology when it comes to the coming of the Lord or the parousia, which is just the Greek word for coming. So in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4, 13 through 18, you can see this. Uh, it's very specific. Paul says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Because the Thessalonians were struggling with uh, trying to understand how this life is actually better. Like, how are we going to um, enjoy Christ if, like, Christians die and they're, then they're not with Christ? Because they're kind of struggling with that idea. They don't quite get. A lot of their culture is more driving their theology than actual um, spirit-driven understanding. So Paul offers his understanding. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, meaning dead, that you may not grieve as others who do not have a hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry and a command in the voice of the archangel and with the sound of the trumpet. Notice the way in which he paints this picture. He uses different language than he talks about in Daniel 7. This isn't, he goes clouds, he takes the clouds to the Father. This isn't the presence approaching the Father. This is a descension, right? So earlier was an ascension, now we're talking about a descension. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry and a command. It's loud. With a voice of an archangel. Once again, it's loud. All will hear. And the sound of the trumpet of God. Right? This is a summoning. If you think about this, you can see this uh, as an old idea. Um, you have this with Nebuchadnezzar. He makes an image of himself. And at the sound of the great musical instruments and all the things and the shouts, right? At this loud sound, all will fall down and worship. Right? And so I think there's some of that going on here. That at this loud sound, Christ appears, and what we have in Philippians 2 is that all will worship. So this is the idea. Christ comes, and Christ will bring with him the dead. Those who have fallen asleep, those are the Christians, those who have fallen asleep, will come with Christ. So they're coming here, right? So those of us who haven't died, we don't go up to heaven. We don't abandon the earth. Christ brings the dead, the saints, and he brings them to us those who are alive at the time of his coming. And this is where it kind of gets confusing. Uh, Paul says, And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be, the, be with the Lord. Therefore encourage one another with these words. Notice what he says. He says that we will go up to meet the Lord in the air. And sometimes that means that uh, people think that we go up to meet the Lord and then we leave from there. That's actually not the idea. The idea here in the Greek, if we look at this word to meet, it's not normal. 
Uh, this isn't the same kind of just like, hey, how, how are you? No, this kind of meeting is what you see when you, someone meets or greets someone into a city. So it'd be like when Jesus is moving into Jerusalem. The people leave Jerusalem to receive him to Jerusalem. They go out to meet Jesus on the road, and then they accept him into the city. That's the idea. That's the word here. So you go up to meet Christ, and we bring him back to the earth, and then we dwell with him here. That's the idea. Okay? Now, here's what is interesting, is that every time we get this picture that Christ comes, every time that type of thing, that type of event is described, we spend way more time talking about the description of the event, and we totally ignore what the writer or the author or the speaker emphasizes. We emphasize, I believe, the wrong thing almost all the time, and our questions almost always revolve around these types of things. But if you pay attention, every time this type of thing happens, it is always with the instruction to be prepared. Always with the instruction to be prepared. When is he gonna, when's Jesus going to come back? I don't know. He said it'd be like a thief, so we don't know. You know what he did tell us, though? He told us to be ready. So that's what we must do. We must be ready. So you can see that on, if you want to go ahead and take a look at 1 Thessalonians 5, um, you can check that on your own. It's, it happens everywhere. Pay attention to how the, uh, the second coming of Christ, in terms of its description, is always, always paired with be ready. You don't know when it's going to happen. It'll be like a thief in the night. Therefore, it will be unexpected. People will be doing what they always do, and Christ will come. Therefore, you must be prepared. That's the idea. And also, that's a huge encouragement to the saints. Christ's judgment, Christ's appearing, is not a bad thing for the saints. It's actually a good thing. You have this idea that God's judgment comes, and it's kind of like a double-edged sword. It is judgment and condemnation to those who desire not to be with God, those who deny his son of lordship. If you deny God what is rightfully his, and if you set your life up in opposition to the things that he is, right? God is love. Therefore, if you don't want to be a part of God, then he will not make you be a part of what he wants to do. Just know all the things he wants to do are great things, right? That's the reality of hell. And when God appears to us, when Christ appears to us, we will be given mercy. It will be our salvation at his appearing, and others it will be their condemnation by the way in which they've aligned their allegiance. So our allegiance must always be aligned with Christ the King. And so you have this, again, this, the Thessalonians are still struggling with this idea, so Paul writes another letter. Um, and so he uh, says in Second Thessalonians 1, verse 5, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay you with afflictions, those, of those who afflicted you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because of our testimony was because our testimony to you was believed. To this we always pray for you. And then he continues on that God would take care of them. This is the idea. 
that Christ will appear to us. All will be made known. And we do not need to fear that when Christ appears that we will be found wanting. Those who are of the faith will not be found wanting. We will be found in Christ. God will look at us and he will ask us, why do you deserve to belong to my new kingdom? And if the answer is anything but, I don't, but Jesus is my savior, then we don't belong there. But Jesus is the one who gives us our justification before the Father. Why do you belong here? I don't. But you said that your son would cover the sins that I had committed. And I am cashing in on that claim. And God smiles. And God is proven right. And it is un- God gives us this idea. It's unjust for God to punish us for things which his son has suffered in the end of time. That is a beautiful idea that God considers you worthy through his son to be a part of his new kingdom. This final picture, you can see this in Revelation 20. Revelation normally causes a lot of controversy, but this, this idea seems to be well established. Uh, verse, excuse me, I, Revelation 20, verse 11, he says, Then I saw, this is John speaking as he's had all of these crazy experiences and seen these wild things. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Once again, that's an echo. Um, it's a reference to Daniel 7. This is the idea. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what is written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. I love this. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Death itself is judged. And this is the second death of the lake of fire, which is a reference back to what happens at the beginning of chapter 20, which describes the first resurrection, which um, in context seems to be the first resurrection is the, uh, the acceptance of the new life in real life. So it would be like baptism and the acceptance of faith and the entrance into the new community. That's the first resurrection because we understand that when we go down into the baptistry, as we are baptized into Christ's death, we are resurrected into his life. We are united into his new life, right? That's the idea. So there's this first resurrection. And then here you have a reference of a second death. It seems final. It seems infinite. It seems um, uh, like the complete end of the things, right? This is the judgment. And so you have a first resurrection and a second death which comes to us as kind of confusing, but the first resurrection for the saints is the resurrection of the baptism as we unify our lives with Christ. Therefore, if we have a second death, we must have a second resurrection. If we mention a first resurrection and a second death, that means we must be missing a second resurrection and a first death. So the first resurrection is the one that happens in life as we live in Christ. Therefore, a second resurrection, which will be a final resurrection when we receive the new glory, when we are uh, given new bodies, the incorruptible, we will see Christ and we will be made like Christ. And in an instant, we are made like him. We see him as he is. That is the second resurrection, the full resurrection. And also you have the first death, which comes to all of us. It's appointed once for men to die and to be judged. So we die in real life, and those who do not put their faith in God, it says, die again. This death is the lake of fire, it's Gehenna, Hades, the same idea, it's hell. God separates himself from those who do not want 
what he is offering. I kind of love that idea about God, that he doesn't push you to accept him, that he actually lets you choose, I believe. He seems to let people choose. And so all of these ideas, all of this can be summed up in Psalm. The Psalms are a great place to find some of these, uh, some of these themes. Psalm 24 is a great way to end this. I'll just read it in conclusion. Um, earlier, I uh, could have referenced Psalm 2 in the Ascension, but um, I think Psalm 24 summarizes this whole idea, summarizes the Ascension, the enthronement, and the judgment here. Um, it says, David writes, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has a clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive a blessing from the Lord and the righteousness from God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty in battle. The Lord, mighty in battle, lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory.